0: Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau, the podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights
1: with your host Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Hey. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today our guest is Jane Anson, wine critic and author of Inside Bordeaux, founder of janeanson.com and former Bordeaux correspondent for Decanter for nearly 20 years, and also a prior guest on episode 31, where she joined us on our 2020 year-end recap. Jane, welcome back to the show.
2: Hi, Robert. Hi, Peter. Thanks so much for having me back.
1: We wanted to talk about how Bordeaux is changing, and we figured we'd have no better guest than you with the author of Inside Bordeaux. And so, we're wondering if you give us a brief background for people who may not know who you are, especially in your experience in wine as well as your background in Bordeaux.
2: Okay, sure. So, I have been living in Bordeaux since 2003, which all of a sudden is basically (laughs) nearly 20 years. And my background prior to that is I'm a journalist, I'm a writer, and I came to Bordeaux honestly thinking I'd be here for a year or two. So, I think we can say luck and circumstance brought me to becoming an expert in Bordeaux because when I arrived here, I realized that there were so many stories as a writer, and then I became more and more interested in the whole history of the wine and started studying more about it and doing a course, like a year long called the Tasting Aptitude at the local school of enology. And the more I learned, the more I just found it fascinating. So I'm still here.
1: What drove your interest in Bordeaux in the first place? I mean, there's a lot of wine regions, and I'm just curious on what about Bordeaux in particular drove you to move there.
2: Honestly, the thought when we moved here was to live somewhere in the heart of a wine region because I knew I wanted to start specializing in writing about wine, but it wasn't certain that Bordeaux was going to be the choice. We looked at the places in France where we could potentially move to, and Champagne seemed like a sensible one, except it was so far north, we thought, you know, maybe the weather's not so great. And Burgundy, I definitely considered, but there weren't really big cities. And We were living in London before, and I wanted to go somewhere that felt still that there was a life outside of just wine. And Bordeaux kind of made sense. It was only an hour away from the UK. And before everything's happened over the last couple of years, we would have three flights a day going back to London. It was so easy to be here, but to still feel like I was part of the working environment of London and also family. And then, as I said, that when you get here, you realise it's a beautiful city. We're two hours from the Spanish border, so it's a very easy place to live in terms of accessing other wine regions. To get to Rioja from here is about three and a half hours' drive. So it's well-placed, you're near the Loire, obviously close to Paris, two hours on the train from Paris. And then Bordeaux itself, when you start to put it all together, you realize there's the economy, there's the history, there's the taste of the wines, there's just so many different angles that you can approach this wine region that it became just a really fun place as a writer to be. But I could say one thing, which is I didn't know when I moved here how prestigious Bordeaux was in many, many ways. I didn't realize what big shoes I would have to fill writing about it. And I think that really helped me. I think had I known as much as I now know about Broadbent and Spurrier and all of these greats who wrote about wine in Bordeaux, I'm not sure that I would have dared, honestly, to move here and become a specialist.
0: Ignorance is bliss sometimes,
2: Definitely right.
0: Bordeaux is like the fifth or sixth biggest city in France, I think, right? Yeah, I
2: think it's the fifth. Yeah, maybe it goes between fifth and sixth. It keeps switching between them.
0: And for those who aren't as familiar, the wine region is, there's the big city of Bordeaux and the wine region, there's some that are in the outskirts of it, right, with like the Pessac, but the left bank and the right bank are still like half an hour, hour drive out.
2: Yeah, exactly. And Bordeaux is lucky in that the name of the city is the same as the wine region, whereas in Burgundy, you've got Beaune and Dijon, you know, they're different names. So I think that's helped Bordeaux as well globally, having the same name for the whole thing.
0: So after nearly 20 years with Decanter as their Bordeaux correspondent and Decanter being probably one of the world's benchmark wine magazines... You decided to leave and start janeanson.com. I think it's also known as Jane Anson Inside Bordeaux.
2: So you can get to it by inside-bordeaux.com or janeanson.com. janeanson.com is the simplest, so that's the one that I'm leading with. But either way, people can get to it. Honestly, I couldn't have been luckier to work with Decanter since I got here. When I moved to Bordeaux, I really knocked on their door. I went back to London, and I knocked on their door and said, I'm living out here. And they wanted a journalist as opposed to a wine expert. So I was very fortunate for that. They wanted somebody who could report on what was happening in the wine area. And I cannot recommend that highly enough. If people are wanting to become wine writers, it's hard to leap in and talk about the wine itself. But if you have the skills of being able to look at what's happening in the region, who are the key figures, what's the news, what's important, you know, what's changing, what's been bought and sold, all that kind of stuff... I found it a great way to really kind of get involved and understand the region before I started tasting its wines. And I would definitely recommend that to other young wine writers or people wanting to, you know, get into it. So I've been so lucky and I slowly but surely built up doing more and more with Decanter from being freelance to being really part of their core team for Bordeaux. And I started doing a weekly column from 2014. I started covering on Ompremers from the 2014 vintage as well as part of a team and then a sole decanter taster since 2016 or 2017, I think 2016 vintage. I know it's been great, but I just felt it was the time in my career where I could go and see what happens next. It kind of felt nothing ventured, nothing gained. And I could see that there was a gap in the market. Burgundy has like four or five sites which are dedicated to Burgundy. Bordeaux doesn't even have one at this level of critics who are really specialized talking specifically about that region. I know I can do a good job of it. So I just felt it was the time. But it's very, very amicable with Decanter. I'm still going to be doing the Decanter World Wine Awards for them because I'm not launching wine awards. I'll still be doing that for decanter. I think they're a brilliant magazine. I have nothing but respect for what they do. I
1: was wondering if you could go a little bit more into the value proposition for Janeanson.com. As you said, there's a lot of comparables in Burgundy, but nothing in Bordeaux. So what will users be able to find or access? What insights will be a combination of journalism and reviews, or will be more than that? So, first
2: of all, there's going to be no outside investment. I'm not getting investors. I'm not asking for venture capital money. I'm not asking for advertising. It will be entirely independent. I'm putting my own money in to launch it. I've looked out at what's out there. And there's a lot of advice about how to buy Bordeaux wine, what wines to buy. There isn't so much about when to drink these wines. So you bought them, you put all this money in, and when do you open them? Also, Bordeaux, is a place where people invest a lot and you have wine funds who buy all these large amounts of wines. And what that means is when there's money involved, you really do need independent voices who actually know what they're talking about and can give advice, which is helpful. So a lot of my focus is going to be on drinkability. So I'll be doing all the wines that go through the Place de Bordeaux, which means a lot of the top estates in Bordeaux and also the top estates around the world, the icon wines like Masetto, Opus One, you know, there's a lot of wines now, about 90 wines, which go through the Place de Bordeaux, which are not actually Bordelais wines. And I'll be covering them as well, which is super exciting. I love those wines. I started doing a report on them last September and I did it again this year. And that will be something that I do every year. And then through the year, you'll get verticals of those. I'm trying to put yeah this focus on drinkability where you see nowadays, always you see drinking windows that go from like 2021 to 2060. And we're like, come on, how helpful is that really? So I'm trying to do a lot more of actually specifically saying how long should you be opening before you drink them and tasting them regularly to say, okay, now you can start. But if you're going to drink it now, open it for six hours before you drink. And you know, that kind of thing, really putting that kind of focus on I want the people who are subscribers to feel that they have a real relationship with me as well, that it isn't just me being on high, giving my notes. I love writing. I'm a writer. So there are definitely going to be a lot of, like one of the things I'm launching with is this really cool diary of a World War II German soldier who's in the Medoc, which has only been published in French and only a couple of months ago. And I've had it translated into English and there's incredible photographs that he took during world war Two, and so that kind of stuff's going to you know, go into the archives in bordeaux find the cool stories bring them out for the people who are listening there's going to be podcasts there's going to be videos i do a lot of work with 67 palmel who've just launched a tv channel so there'll be access to the stuff that i do for them and that's things like I interviewed a guy recently who runs a society here that looks at the role of Bordeaux in the slave trade. And that's something that people never talk about. So I interviewed him and I'm going to be talking, like bringing to light that kind of thing. And of course, there will be regular verticals and all the notes that I would normally do for Decanter, which will mean your on primo reports, your in bottle reports, all that kind of stuff. So it's fun, it's exciting. And yes, so sorry, I didn't say so. I want the people to feel like they have a real relationship with me as well. So I'm running two weeks during the year, I'm going to do one week, which will be a high end for collectors to come and really, really go inside some of the great chateaus here. But I'm also going to do a free week, which I'm going to offer my time for free. And I'm going to hope to get some sponsorship off chateaus just purely for that to bring people over. And that will be aimed at young sommeliers or guys who want to work in the wine trade and who think that Bordeaux is closed and it's not for them, or it's too expensive to get you know any experience with it. And I'll bring them over and taste some of those really old, rare vintages that are so hard to get hold of and take them to see agroforestry projects or biodynamic, organic, the kind of young, just the dynamic side of Bordeaux so that I can feel like I'm giving something back. I feel like I'm at the point in my career now where I want to take my experience and help because another thing that I know is if you become specialized in Bordeaux, if you know Bordeaux, it's very, very good for your career. You know, it's hard to be a wine writer and make a sustainable living from it. And this is a region which can offer you that because it's wanted around the world. It's drunk around the world. You name the country around the world and Bordeaux wine is present in it. So there's huge opportunities for new voices to become interested and experienced in this area. And I don't think it's anywhere near open enough for those voices. So I want to help with that.
1: It's interesting you mentioned the trying to get a different set of voices to look at the region. And so do you envision that? the users of JNansen.com or subscribers of Come will look slightly different than or considerably different than potentially Decanter Hunter does?
2: Well, honestly, I would love it if people feel that I am more open and more accessible in terms of how I talk to people and how I talk about the wines. I'm very conscious every time I do a tasting note that I'm trying to give context so people can make their own choices and empower their own decision-making. I really try not to say, this is my point of view. And because I know more than everybody else, this is what I think, you know, I really, really try to say, this is the kind of soil that this chateau is on. And therefore, that's why it's going to taste the way it does. These are the people that own it. This is what they like. Just try to every time give context. So that if you read my tasting notes regularly, I hope you yourself will become much more able to then follow your own choices and make your own decisions.
0: So you mentioned how Bordeaux is everywhere in the world. And it's traditionally been the standard bearer of fine wine globally. But there's been some chinks in that armor, one might say, over the last couple of decades. And especially Burgundy has been on the rise. We talked to William Kelly of The Wine Advocate, and he said all roads lead to Burgundy, especially through like that terroir focus. Although he did also say that Bordeaux would be on the rise again. What do you think historically made Bordeaux the iconic region for wine that it is?
2: I think that Bordeaux was very lucky in many ways to be a port city you know it's right on the Garonne river but it's also far enough inland it's about 50 miles from the atlantic ocean so it's far enough inland that it was a safe port for people to load and unload so right back in the middle ages they you were able to trade from bordeaux and that's always been the case bordeaux was also very lucky in that historically it had this setup right from the 12th century of when Bordeaux was a duchy of the English crown. So you had the wine being made here, but it was being sold overseas. It was being sold in the London market. And it meant that this whole system, this kind of weird system of Bordeaux, where you have chateaus, brokers, and merchants, so négociants, is entirely set up really to export the wine out of the Bordeaux region, which means going on a thousand years now, they've made the wine thinking about other markets and going out looking for other markets, finding the money. Bordeaux always follows the money. It's another fascinating thing in terms of, if you're looking at it from the anthropology of Bordeaux wine, there's just so many cool ways to look at how Bordeaux has been sold and drunk through the centuries. And so I think this idea of having a network of merchants who are not even paid by the chateaus, they're paid by the guys who buy the wine. And they've had centuries of going out there and talking about Bordeaux wine. So that obviously has given it a huge advantage. But one thing that I really learned by doing my book Inside Bordeaux, I wanted to put the focus much more on terroir than I ever think it has been before. So exactly taking William's point, and I couldn't agree more. One of the things that became very clear to me was that Bordeaux terroir is so complex. I think that's one of the reasons why it isn't talked about in the same way that Burgundy is, because it's so big. This is a huge area and you have Some areas are pure limestone, some areas are pure clay, some are gravel. Most are a mix, are a combination of all of those things. And it makes this huge difference. But there's so many things to talk about that it can become confusing. And I think people prefer not to. And they look at it just in terms of big brands and money. But let's just take the 1855 classification. Okay, so that's been in place for, what is it, 160 years or so now. And it's this kind of strip of 61 wines, red wines like the Fiet, Rothschild, Mouton, etc., we tend to think, why are they classified? It's because they had rich owners. It's because they've been around for long enough that they established themselves. But if you actually start to look at the soil underneath those chateaus, every single one of those 61 chateaus is on two specific terraces. So the Medoc has got six terraces of gravel. And there's one to six. And every single one of those 61, 1855 estates are on Terrace 3 and Terrace 4. So what that tells you is there is a genuine link to the terroir of those estates and the quality of their wines. They are on a particular type of soil, which tends to be clay underneath with gravel on top. So it gives power and gives finesse. And they're close enough to the river that they get this microclimate of the cooling breezes, et cetera. And you start to realize, okay, there is a reason. It's not just about money. It's not just about who their owners were at the right time in history. And the more you unpick that about Bordeaux, the more you see yet another route into the wines that makes it kind of fun and different and more geeky in many ways. But the kind of thing that can appeal to people who love Burgundy or who love Barolo and all of the different kind of micro, you know, terroirs that you get in Barolo and the things that we're just used to, we don't talk about in Bordeaux. And I hope that we can do going forward.
0: So are you going to do reports on each terrace of Bordeaux? Yeah, so
2: with, well, I'm going to do some really cool tastings where, so say if you look at Margot, again, there are five different terraces in Margot, so I'll do tastings of them all and show the different types of flavors that you can get for them. And Centimillion is a brilliant appellation for that, because Emilion has really distinct, really distinct, pure limestone and then lots of clay that gives a more powerful kind, and then gravel. So all in one appellation that we tend to think of as being one big monolithic whole, in fact, it's so different. I'm gonna try and just bring that to life. I also think that's a way to talk about small estates in a way that is more interesting to people. Because I can tell you from the last 15 years of doing verticals for decanter regularly, I try and bring forward smaller properties that I think are interesting and People say they want them, but they're not the ones that get the click through. They're not the ones that people click on to read. Whereas I think if we can present them as these ones are cool and here's why, and this is what you can learn about the way that wine tastes, then I hope that will be much more of an appealing way to kind of present them.
0: Well, and bringing it back to the money part, it could also be these are the next ones that could be increasing in value.
2: Exactly. exactly. If they're
0: on the same terraces as the first growth or whatnot, they have the same sort of potential, right?
2: That's exactly right. And also you think about global warming. If you look at these kind of where are the places in Bordeaux that there are slightly cooler soils, but they're the same basic structure as the big names. Again, that's a kind of fun way to start looking out for the next big thing.
0: So Bordeaux has had this rich history, been the giant of the entire wine industry for centuries, but it's lost a little bit of luster in the past decade or two. Why do you think that's been?
2: I think that the Bordelais are often their own worst enemy. I think the thing that I'm going to find the hardest to convince people, not necessarily the end consumers, but other journalists, I would think, is that I'm not trying to be a lackey of Bordeaux by launching this site. That is absolutely the furthest thing from my mind and my intention. It is to be honest and independent about what's happening with Bordeaux. And it goes back to what we said at the beginning. There's so much money involved in this place. Of having somebody here who really can read between the lines because I'm here during the harvest. I see what's happening. I will always be more sceptical in terms of what I'm told because I'm actually living through the vintage each year. Yeah, I think the Bordelais are their own worst enemy by This whole idea of every vintage being great, when clearly that can't be the case, I think that they can be frustrating over the prices that they ask. Mm -hmm. Every year, you think, okay, they start off reasonable, and then by the end of the on primo campaign, everything goes crazy, and they're asking prices which are not realistic. There have been vintages like 2009 and 2010, which were absolutely wonderful quality years, but came out at such a price that actually most people that bought lost money consistently for the following decade. A lot of them haven't even recovered. Actually, that's not quite true. When you drill down, it's the most expensive wines that haven't recovered. It's the first growths, in fact, that are so much that they're having a hard time getting back up to their opening price. But this is, again, a great way to, if you use terroir, use the idea of where are the cool spots, where are the sweet spots in each vintage and then if you have a great year like 2010, you don't have to spend the highest prices because you can look. So Sociando Malle, we talked about estates which are on the same terraces, but that don't have the same classification and the same prices. Sociando Male is a great example because that's on Terrace 4, which is the cool terrace where tons of 1855 first growths are, but it's not classified. And in a year like 2010, it's such a great estate to go and look for.
1: Often a darling of the Psalms, at least in the US.
2: Yeah, exactly. But I'd love to get Psalms more excited about Bordeaux again.
1: So when Peter and I are learning about wine, it's when we come to Bordeaux, it's quite unique. And one of the key elements there for us is learning about the system of merchants and negotiants uh, that is Laplace de Bordeaux, that operates futures where you're essentially selling wine before it's even finished or released. I was wondering if you give our listeners a brief overview of Laplace de Bordeaux.
2: Okay. So I think Most important is to say that it is business to business. Their expertise is not selling to consumers. Their expertise is selling to the merchants who sell on to consumers. But what they do brilliantly, it's basically a virtual marketplace. Within Bordeaux, you have the chateaus, you have the brokers, and you have the négociants. And the Place de Bordeaux is a way to move the wine around all of those things but they have access. The Place gives you access to something like 10,000 clients globally because they sell not just to the importers, but they find in every single country, they try and put the wine in at every single level. So they'll have on-trade specialists. They'll have off-trade specialists. They'll have specialists who just deal with the tiny corner shops, or they'll have specialists which deal with the hotels or the supermarket chains. So what they do is there's this capillary system of getting the wines to every different level of the food chain. And they do it more effectively probably than any other system in the world, really. Because if you're a big estate and you choose to work through individual, whatever the word is, importers in each country, which many, many people do, that's very, very effective in terms of brand building with that importer, but it doesn't necessarily touch every single part of the market. And what Bordeaux does so effectively is they touch every part of the market, but they don't build your brand. What they're doing is they're taking a brand, usually they take a brand which is already existing and they make sure that it gets everywhere. So you can keep your price high because they manage very cleverly to keep scarcity value in the way that Champagne does a brilliant job of maintaining the illusion of scarcity, even when they're producing large amounts of wine. The Place does that very effectively as well. In fact, I was fascinated that this year, for the first time, a Champagne is selling through the Place. So, Clos de Grace, one of the greatest Champagnes in the world, that has chosen the Bordeaux system to sell this year.
1: And is there a figurehead? I mean, it sounds like it's more of a group of merchants that are, it's more of like essentially a consortium or something like that. It doesn't sound like there's a, a person driving it.
2: There's no single entity and that's also its strength. So let's imagine, I don't know, really recently, let's think about COVID. So the last 12 months or 24 months, most of the on trade channels have closed down because you know we haven't had restaurants open. Also the duty-free channel, which is a huge channel for taking wine globally, that has been pretty much closed down as well. So if you are a single estate and you're selling direct, and you have your contacts in those areas, and they're not taking your wine, you are left with a problem because you're left with a lot of stock you can't get rid of. If you're selling through the Place de Bordeaux, in theory, the negociants who deal with those channels, they might be unlucky, but there'll be another negociant who specializes in a different region and a different area and a different kind of sales who can step up and take the wine and move it somewhere else. So in theory, it's a very reactive way of kind of rolling with whatever the punches are in the global economy.
1: So when I hear a system like this, in some ways it almost sounds antiquated, you know, with lots of middle people that almost like is in the face of the digital evolution that is happening for e-commerce all across the world at this point. And I'm just curious on, do all these middle people increase cost for the end consumer? Or are there some other negatives that I'm just not seeing in terms of a system like that? Because clearly it seems very efficient from a B2B perspective. I'm just curious on like, how should we interpret? What are the downsides?
2: There are tons of drawbacks as well. It's effective in that way. And in some ways, it creates a massively competitive environment, which I guess helps price, particularly, I would say, at the lower end of the scale, when you're looking for supermarket wines, cru bourgeois, et cetera, because there are so many merchants competing for each one of those to sell the wine. Let's think about that. There's so many merchants competing to sell those wine that they can't put the prices too high. But as soon as you get to the high end of the scale, when they are illustrious brands, then yes, I think for the end consumer, we look at Bordeaux Chateaus putting their prices up every year or yo-yo pricing, but whenever they can go high, they do. And clearly the system kind of allows that. I think that the Bordeaux system protects Bordeaux very well. And how it does that is because if you're a Chateau and you've got your negotiants that you work with, they have to buy even in the bad years to get the wine in the good years. So for you as a chateau, that's very, very effective because it means that you're never left with stock at your own chateau because somebody's buying it. But for the consumer, clearly that means somebody's paying the price for that. So I think it's great in many ways for the chateaus, although they miss out on having direct contact with their consumers. And you couldn't be more right in terms of nowadays. What do we care about? We care about authenticity in our brands. If we're spending a lot of money on a brand, we care that there are real people there, that they care about the environment, that they care about how they treat their workers, all of this kind of thing. Luxury goods are no longer just about money and they're not gonna be. This is gonna be more and more true over the next decade. It matters how brands treat the people that work with them and the people that work for them and who drink them in the end. And I think that the place de Bordeaux can hide, can put too much of a veil up between the chateaus and the end consumer. And so that's definitely a big drawback. And it works very well if you're a already established brand, I think it's a less effective system for the small guys.
1: So it sounds like, or it seems like some of the wine merchants also pass on that thought process of, you know, you have to buy in the bad years as well to the consumers. It's almost like the original allocation system where if you want to get the good pricing, you need to continually buy your allocation or the things you've been buying over time. Or if you want to get to the better tranche of pricing, you need to, you know, make sure you're buying year over year. And I'm just curious, like that concept is very, very similar to us in terms of how you know a lot of these cult wines are doing allocations, but that delineated pricing, those tiers of pricing, is quite interesting.
2: Yeah, I agree. And in fact it's very interesting as well with these new guys coming on the place from California, because you would think that those guys have got it made because they have an audience locally that really, really wants their wines and is prepared to pay highly for them. And you'll have the waiting list system and and yet quite a few of them are choosing to come onto the place. And you question why, I certainly question why. And then when you speak to them, their feeling is fine wine nowadays, it's about the same people want to buy and drink the great Tuscan wines as the great Napa wines, as the great Bordeaux, et cetera. And it's how do you reach that tranche of people? And if you want your wine to be considered among the great wines of the world, you want to be playing next to those guys. You want the Soms to be recommending you in the same breath as feet or whatever. And I guess they see the Blast Bordeaux as being a shortcut for that. Well, not necessarily a shortcut because it's hard work. You've got to accompany them if you want it to work, but they see it as being a gateway to that.
0: Absolutely. It's the export market. The domestic market in the US is so huge, they didn't need it before. But as there's so much competition now within a place like Napa, which is so small, you need to have that export channel to distribute your wines globally and create more scarcity domestically. And so you're mentioning that there's a lot of non-Bordeaux wineries in the Laplace, like Opus One and some of our former guests like Catena and Bodega Garzon.
2: Oh, one of my very, very favorite wines on Laplace is the Adriana Vineyard from Catena. Just love that wine.
0: That is fantastic. What do you think driving the trend? And do you think more non-Bordeaux wineries are going to continue to join Laplace?
2: So I started kind of, properly following this trend i guess a decade ago when opus one opened their office in bordeaux so they'd been on the place since 2004 with their 2001 vintage and they were the second people after almaviva almaviva in the mid 90s so almaviva obviously bordeaux connection opus one bordeaux connection and then about 5 years ago something like that there was suddenly this kind of explosion with meseto and these kind of high profile non bordeaux that don't have a connection to bordeaux and then I wrote this report, the first one. I think the first one actually that was written that looked it was specifically tasting the wines that come out in September. And I did that one last year. And at that point, there were 60 wines on the Place. And then this year I've redone it and there are 90 wines going through the Place, which are non-Bordeaux. And I fully expect next year for there to be over 100. I mean, there's gotta be a limit, I would think, because one of the points is that this is the exclusive, these kind of fine, fine wines of the world So there must be an upper limit, but I can easily see it doubling from where it is now.
0: And what are the barriers or the hurdles of getting into the Laplace for an outsider?
2: I think volume is a big one because this idea of Bordeaux being a capillary system, the the place being a capillary system that gets your wine out everywhere. So you need to, I guess, have enough volume to make it worth your while. I would say, although some of the estates are doing tiny amounts. So Claude de for example, the Champagne has only put Six hundred bottles of their nineteen ninety-six late release. So maybe I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but that would seem to me that having enough volume to make it worthwhile has got to be part of it. You've also got to be prepared to still do your own work in terms of going out, meeting your consumers, brand building. Don't leave it for negotiants to do it. Still, you've got to think I am the person that knows best my brand, and I want to be out there. And it's something that I think that the Bordelais have learned from the overseas wines. Because until Opus came along, most of the chateaus, maybe they cared, but they certainly didn't follow where the negotiants were selling to. And the negotiants would kind of jealously guard their client list. And that was their thing. And they didn't share it with the chateaus. But Opus came along and said, if you want to sell my wine, I need to know exactly where it's going to. These are my consumers that I want to be reaching. They chose to take it back off their importers that originally were going into each area. But for them to make that choice, they had to be very, very clear that it was going to be an improvement on the system that they had in place before. So they followed it so very focused and so carefully that I think other Bordeaux Chateaus looked at that and thought, oh, hang on a minute, why on earth have we not been doing that up till now? And I think it's helped the Bordeaux Chateaus to learn a far more effective way of dealing with the negotiation system.
0: So you mentioned volume in your mind. Is there a target volume that would make it worthwhile for them?
2: Obviously, it depends on each estate. It's also actually worth saying that the whole business of this is so interesting, because some of them, like Opus, they basically say to the place, you do all of our export. So they take care of the states, but all of their export goes to the Place de Bordeaux. But then there are other guys, and I'm now drawing a blank on who, but plenty of them will say, okay, we're doing everything but China you're doing, or you in know, mainland China, that's where we want the Plas to do it. And one of the reasons that the Plas is being so successful with overseas wines, which in fact, I didn't mention before, is their expertise in the Asian market, because it's a complicated market. And also it's a market which, because it's relatively new over the last 20 years, you have a lot of importers who appear and then disappear. And you have small companies who are very successful for a while and then They kind of die away. So you need to be on the ground with true insider knowledge. Of course, we know this intellectually, but saying, I want to go into China means nothing because there are so many different regions and so many different ways to get in. And so because Bordeaux had this big love affair with China 20 years ago and it really exploded, there truly is good, deep knowledge of the different sales channels within China here and not just China, but Vietnam and Japan and other parts of the Asian region And I think that that has been one of the reasons that people come to Bordeaux because they want that shortcut expertise.
0: That's fascinating. I believe this is true, but you can correct me that there is no Burgundy producers selling through Laplace? To date,
2: there is none. No. And it may well be that there will never be. Really, I'm fascinated to see if anyone comes along. But my guess is, A, they don't have the volume to make it necessary. B, they don't have the Need. They have such small production anyway, and such incredible demand right now for their production that they decide the place is not for them. And of course, inevitably, the rivalry between Bordeaux and Burgundy. I wouldn't like to be the first Burgundian producer to put my wine onto the place de Bordeaux and get all the hassle they'll get from their neighbors. But I would have thought that maybe about champagne. But I was surprised and kind of happy to see Claude de Gras happy for me because I get to taste the September release. <laughs>
0: And do the Bordelais or maybe the Chateau in particular like all these foreign brands joining the system? well? a brilliant,
2: brilliant question. And, you know, when it first happened, like 10 years ago, they hated it. And there was, you heard a rumor about a very famous lunch, which I now know for sure happened. I'm not going to say where it was, but there was a very famous lunch with Négociants with Bordeaux Chateau owners, where there was like standing up shouting of the Chateau owners saying, What are you doing? You've got to be paying attention to our wines, not to the overseas wines. But they quickly actually realized the interest for them as well. It draws attention to the skills and expertise of the Place de Bordeaux. It puts Bordeaux back into the center of being part of the fine wine ecosystem. And for me, it's a win-win for Bordeaux. The people who miss out, who lose out on this, and I think it's really going to be a problem over the next decade, are the small Bordeaux chateaus. So the Cru Bourgeois level, because what happens is you're a negotiator. you don't have endless money, but you have money to buy and sell wine. But if you're putting that budget into overseas wines, you're probably not buying as many of the smaller Bordeaux estates. And I do think that's a shame. And I think we're going to see more and more cru bourgeois wines being bought up by the bigger guys over the next decade.
1: In terms of those smaller châteaux or wineries starting to build their brand, you mentioned that Laplace doesn't actually go to promote itself. It's just a purely a business-to-business merchant entity. Does it help though? Does it help provide tools for them to tell their story? Like anytime you're like passing your product through multiple layers, you would expect that the story starts to get diluted or is that entirely on the winery or chateau to do that on their own?
2: Well, I think it should be on the winery and chateau to do it. I'm not sure how effectively many of them do it because this has got to be the single biggest drawback of the place is that if you don't pay attention, I guess you think, oh, it doesn't matter because I've got somebody else doing the selling for me. But the reality is it is always going to be the most important thing for you to do is to tell your own story. So I think that's a big drawback. But if they do it effectively, then yes, they have a route to the final consumer. But what they need to do is to go and actually go out to those markets alongside the negotiants and do those dinners and do those tastings and get out there and tell their story or make sure that their social media channels are brilliant and their websites and all the stuff that we know people need to do.
1: I would assume in lieu of that story, if you don't have that as a winery or a chateau, that your product becomes a little bit more commoditized in terms of like, it's this at this price point at this volume, and it becomes a little bit, especially for grocery store purchasing decisions or something like that, where, oh, the Laplace could just offer something else that's comparable, maybe a couple euros cheaper than something else. And I'm just curious on how do those small participants think about that? I mean, does that click for all of them that they need to be out there telling that story?
2: You have exactly pinpointed why a lot of cru bourgeois and similar levels are in such a mess, because the lower price points of Bordeaux are very much driven by that. Oh, you're a cru bourgeois from Moulis, therefore, I'm going to pay five euros for it. And if you don't want to sell it to me there, I have 20 other negotiants who are selling 20 other or 100 other Moulis at Moulis at that price point. And so it's very, very tough. And I think in many ways, the solution there is they do have to take it back into their own hands. And maybe for them, selling direct is a more effective way to do it. But I think that that's what we're going to be really looking at over the next five, 10 years is seeing the people who do it effectively, and the guys who don't. And in fact, something for my site, just to briefly go back to, I'm not going to do tastings of 500 Côte de Bordeaux in the way that I would have done for Decanter, partly because I don't want to do exactly what Decanter did. I want to do something different. But what I will be doing in a regular way is the smaller estates that I truly think are brilliant, that I truly think are worth following, those guys I'm really going to try to kind of highlight and talk about why they're worth following. And a lot of that will be because they're in great spots with terroir, Or because I really think they're doing such interesting work with biodynamics, with organics, with agroforestry, with all of these things, which I believe in. I'm giving 1% of my turnover to charity as well. I'm doing 1% for the planet with a site, which I don't think any of the other critic sites do. But I think I'm writing about these fine wines. I'm writing about these wines that are so important, having a sense of place. And so I want people who subscribe to the site and me as well, to feel like we're helping in some small way to work with environmental charities.
1: Our previous guest, Pauline Vicar of Areni, who is you know a think tank research firm, they did research on fine wine consumers and they showed that consumers are actually more loyal to their merchant over a specific winery. And I'm curious on do you think that Laplace encourages this or harms this? Yeah, it's
2: a good question. I guess it does both. I mean, in a way, it empowers them because Laplace are not trying to sell direct to the consumer. And so therefore, that story is still being told through the end merchants. And also merchants have the option to buy from as many negotiants as they want to. So for an individual merchant to get, I'm using Lafitte, but that's obviously that's a silly example really because it's so expensive, but let's imagine it's Lafitte. It would be impossible for an individual merchant to get 100 cases of Lafitte or 1,000 cases of Lafitte from the Chateau Direct because they'd never give it to just one person. But that same merchant could buy in theory, from 10 or 20 different negotiants, and then become in you know, a corner of the market in whatever chateau it is, is. Lafitte's not the right example, but you know, whichever chateau he decides to be, it gives the merchants power in that way because they can buy from many different merchants. But at the same time, you're competing price-wise. You don't have exclusivity. Using the PLAS system, it's extremely rare to have exclusivity for one merchant. So I guess it's kind of give and take on both sides.
0: So you mentioned Laplace doesn't do direct-to-consumer, which has been big in the U.S. and in other sort of more new world places. A lot of wineries globally, including European wineries, are looking at direct-to-consumer. How do you think those work together, especially if you're a Bordeaux Chateau that's interested in that?
2: There's nothing stopping you. There's no You don't sign a contract with the Laplace. That's also another thing that maybe is kind of unusual about the Laplace. Just because you got a certain number of wines one year, does not mean you're guaranteed to get those wines the following year. So there's no contracts. So yeah, so in theory, you could do half direct and half through the place. But I think in practice, it works best if you choose one or the other. And a lot of estates are definitely trying to go more direct. And I think that there is a place for it, particularly at this kind of mid-price level Where you really should be telling your own story. You've got to go to the market and show why you're different from other people. And unless you have a very close relationship with your negotiants and a real partnership, I often think in many ways it is better to be in charge of your own destiny. But then, years like the COVID years, as we shall be referring to them, I'm sure one day, when the COVID years come along, and if the bottom falls out of one of your main people who buy your wine, then that's very tough. So, I mean, oh, I don't know. Honestly, it's fascinating as an observer, but I feel so bad for so many of these small producers who've had to live through the last couple of years and try to work out what is the best way for them to cope with it. I don't have the answers. I just know that there are many different potential choices that they can make. But I think what is always, always, always true is be in control of your own story and be authentic in how you talk to people.
1: So you mentioned a couple times about up-and-coming wineries or chateaux that you want to highlight on jnanssen.com. I'm curious, the 1855 classification is pretty static for the most part. There's been a couple of movements over the years, but I am curious, do you think that there will be a new system for up-and-coming producers that will either band together and form their own kind of association, or do you think that there will ever be another classification system that sort of highlight things outside of that historic 1855 classification.
2: So some of the smaller Appalachian, well, the smaller estates do kind of band together and try and put on some... There's a guys called Pomerol Seduction, for example, which is a small group of, I think, eight or 10 Pomerol Chateaus that are... They've still got some pretty big names in there, but not all of them. And they're great and they do a lot of marketing. For a while, there was an association called Bordeaux Oxygen, which was a lot of young producers from all across the different Appalachians. They did really, really cool marketing where they would, I can't think of anything they did that was good, but they would do a completely different, much younger approach and getting sommeliers in and getting DJs in and doing, they really had a very kind of breath of fresh air as Body Oxygen came from approach and it, it worked. I don't think there'll be another classification like 1855 because it just is so complicated nowadays. And you look at Santa Million with every 10 years and you get the lawyers involved and it just, I hope that they don't have another one, frankly. For me, I think maybe more interesting is looking at organic biodynamic associations, looking at people who are doing projects to help the community. And there's a lot of people who are like working with refugees who come to Bordeaux and getting them to come in and work the vineyards. I think those are the kind of areas that I find interesting and that I'd like to highlight. But I do have one awesome, awesome launch vertical that I'm doing of a wine that's called La Fleur Saint-Jean. And it's this tiny estate. It's about one hectare. It's in the middle of Pomerol, and I must have driven past it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, and seen it and thought that can't be a real estate anymore. It must have been sold off because it is literally in the middle of Lafleur, Le Lafleur Le Petrus and Petrus. It's got all three of those estates around it. It's absolutely tiny, and then somehow I just, I guess I thought, okay, I've got to find out what this is. And I went up and I introduced myself and met them. And it turned out that they were a real working winery, but it's just that they only sell direct. They didn't sell through the Place de Bordeaux. And so I hadn't heard of them and they sell out immediately and they'd never done a vertical. So one of my launch verticals is I go back to, I think, mid 1990s with that estate and they're such super, super lovely people. And that's a winery with really, you can't get better location. But I don't think people will have heard of it or not many people. And, you know, that's going to be something really fun. So I'm going to keep trying to do things like that.
0: It's going to sell out even faster after that. (laughs) (laughs) So the on-premier system of futures is also unique to Bordeaux. What's its history and how does it work?
2: So because of the way, again, that Bordeaux is sold, where they've always been make the wine locally and then sell it overseas. You've kind of always, off and on over the centuries, had little samples of the wine going in advance before it's bottled or put into barrel and then shipped off. So that's been the case for centuries, really, that people will be buying the wine en souche, as it's called in French, when you kind of know how good the quality of the vintage is going to be, or you can estimate, but it hasn't yet been turned into wine. And it wasn't really until the early 80s with Parker that that system went from being merchants. So it was always first of all, it was just between Chateau's and the Bordelaise merchants. And then it would go from Chateaus to Bordeaux to outside of Bordeaux. And then really from the early 80s, consumers suddenly realized this could be fun, this is an interesting way of selling wine and Parker did such a great job of injecting a sense of excitement, I guess, into that system. And then people made money most years. But I think it doesn't have the same sense of excitement now as it used to do. And I'm definitely not always sure that it's the best way that people should be buying wine now. It's one route, but I think in most cases in Bordeaux, you can wait till the wine is in bottle and then you'll get a better idea of is the price going to hold for a start and what's the quality. There are certain wines that I would still suggest buying on Prima, and that might be those tiny production Pomeroles, those kind of wines which really genuinely do sell out. And if you want them, it's great to get them when they're young. I recently have bought in years like when Denny Durantu died, I wanted to get his last vintage because it really meant something on an emotional level to me. And so buying on Primo was a way to secure that. Or maybe when a team changes, like when Dufo Lagaros, Beausjour Dufo Lagaros was sold last year, to the Clarins Empire, was it this year? It was sold from being the Nicola Tienpon team making it to now being a new team. Actually, I'm sure it'll be wonderful and it's actually a member of the original family, but a different winemaking team. And I loved the wine being made under Nicolas Tienpon. So again, that's a reason to buy that wine. So there are definitely reasons to buy On Primer, but I don't think it has the same sense of urgency that it probably did have in the heyday of the 80s.
1: And do you think that consumers are losing interest in On Primer now?
2: Well, I think for all those reasons, and yes, I do. There's so many other options of fine wine. The thing that Bordeaux has done very smartly, and this is why I said right at the beginning, Bordeaux knows how to follow the money, and Bordeaux is very, very clever at staying relevant. This idea of selling the fine wines of the world is really quite genius in bringing that focus back to Bordeaux and saying, hang on, we're the experts. We make the world's greatest wines, and so we can recognize the world's greatest wines. Uh, So I don't think that Bordeaux is going anywhere. But I think if they're not much, much, much cleverer about how they price on prima, they will lose a lot of their customers. Because every year you think, come on, there's a system called the tranche system. It's one of the things actually we spoke about before, where they can release a small amount of wine at one price and then increase the price later. And I never can understand why they don't at least sell a very small amount in the first tranche at a really good low price to kind of inject excitement and make it worth buying. But honestly, I've had that conversation with Chateau and plenty of times and I haven't convinced them yet. So I'm not holding my breath.
1: Yeah, so the tranche system is interesting as a consumer or collector, you're trying to get into the earlier things because it seems like it's always the first tranche is the cheapest. It doesn't ever seem like it actually reflects market demand and dial back down. And I just haven't seen it. I'm just curious. Is it always true that they just increase?
2: So I think... And I wish I could remember the vintage, but I seem to remember writing a story. Maybe it was 2009, it might have been. Anyway, it was one year where a chateau did. Incorrectly priced the market, and I'm going to say it was cause d'estonel, but I could be totally wrong. So, anyone listening who remembers what it really was, just let us know. But I think it was cause where they did release at a high price, the market said no, and so they brought it back down again. But that's the only time I've ever heard of that happening. Generally speaking, they test the market at a price that they think is reasonable. And then depending on demand, they increase it. And 2010 is the best example of how this can be so messed up. because So the first gross came out at, let's imagine, 600 euros, which already is crazy, 600 per bottle. If you bought at that price, then you probably have made money today. But they then came out with a further two tranches. And the final tranche or slice, the final one was up to something like 1,200 euros per bottle. And those guys lost money. Of course they lost money. You know it was insane. But that's the kind of beauty of on premier for the people who are doing the selling because it's psychology. You know it's the whole excitement of the chase and it gets people to kind of lose their heads a little bit and then things like 2010 can happen. But the chateaus have suffered for that. It really really destroyed any interest in on premier from the Chinese market for many 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 years after that. And it just once again gave this image of Bordeaux as caring more about money than caring about their consumer. And that only works for so long.
1: Yeah, it just feels like a way to control supply demand for such a large volume of wine that they're using that to create that hype and then capitalize on it for that. So it definitely seems very money-focused, which, I mean, in the end of the day, it is a business, right? So,
2: I guess. I guess it is a business at the end of the day. But still, I think that they could be much smarter about how they do that. And in fact, again, if you go back to Opus, all those kind of wines that are on the place, They don't follow that yo-yo pricing that Bordeaux does. They tend to be far, far, far more consistent. And my feeling is that's probably because they're used to dealing directly with their consumers. So they don't feel like they can get away with that and they don't want to. And I kind of hope that that's something else the Bordelais will learn from the arrival of these overseas estates.
0: So almost a decade ago now, First Growth Chateau Latour made the decision to not do On Premier. Why do you think they did that?
2: At the time, if we kind of head back to, 2012, I guess it was. It was a time of huge interest from the Asian market, particularly. So where we had the financial crash in eight and nine, Bordeaux was in some ways protected from it because at pretty much exactly that time, the Chinese collectors and Hong Kong deregulated, and a lot of those collectors came in. And so... Mm -hmm in many ways, they were protected. So was it partly that the tour felt confident that they were going to be able to price more highly after 10 years? I'm not sure. What they said at the time was that they were more and more conscious of the fact that people didn't have wine cellars and they didn't want to store the wines themselves. They didn't have the money to, they weren't interested in it. And so they wanted to kind of protect the conditions in which the wine was stored and that they then would release it at the time that they felt was best for the consumer. It was confusing. I think at first people thought that meant they were going to sell direct to the consumer, but they didn't. And I think potentially maybe they did explore doing so, but they have decided to stick with the Bordeaux system. So even though it's released later, it's still released through merchants and négociants and the Place de Bordeaux. And I think that is, again, showing that the system for all of its faults works in many ways particularly for the brand owner, if you're a strong enough brand. I was quite cynical as to whether or not it would work. And I don't think we fully know yet. There's been two or three years now that Latour has been releasing wines from the Chateau. And I've got to say, so far, it actually seems that the market is responding well and is buying the wines that they release. But I would still question, would they have made more money if it's about money? Would they've made more money if they'd released it on Primer and been part of that System of like we were talking about the excitement that's created by getting on that train as the train passes, which is basically what Enprimeur is. But Latour has got such a strong brand, such a strong brand that there's always going to be an interest and a demand for their wines. Now I kind of admire them actually for doing what they've done, and. There is a real interest in saying, okay, we're releasing at the time that we feel the wines are ready to drink. And now you have a few more Chateaus coming on. Most of them are doing hybrids. So Chateau Parma now is selling 50% en primeur and then 50% 10 years on. And it's nice and simple. This year, they're selling the 2011. Last year, they sold the 2010. It's just very simple. Whereas the tour system seems to be a bit more, they decide. Which vintages are being released each year? And you can't follow it so much as a consumer, which is a bit confusing in my opinion. But the market you know, definitely seems to be responding to it.
0: So, getting back to janeanson.com, what should people be most excited to see coming up next for janeanson.com?
2: Okay, so the memoirs of the German soldier who was in the Medoc, they really are incredible. They're kind of cool, the stuff like the La Fleur Saint-Jean. I'm also doing a tasting of the oldest vines in Bordeaux, which are pre phylloxera, ungrafted, back from the mid-19th century, the kind of stuff that, again, people just don't think there is in Bordeaux. So really kind of highlighting those kind of things. And then, obviously, I am throwing in a couple of Lafitte back to 1960 and, <laughs> and amazing Chateau Canon back to 1940, the stuff that you would also expect. But what I really am trying to do like I said before, is about drinkability of these wines. So for all of my verticals, I'm saying if you're going to pick one to drink now, this is the one and you're going to be able to search the database by drinkability. That's something which I don't think anybody else is doing. So you can say, I want to look at all the 2015s that are ready to drink now, not just looking at all the 2015s. And you'll be able to look at the wines, not just by which was the highest score, but which are the ones which if you want to open now, you can, because that's something else I really, really hope that I can help kind of broaden is the best wines in a tasting are not necessarily the ones that got the 100 point score because those ones you might need to put away for 20 years and they're going to be too expensive to buy and that's for a very specific type of consumer and collector but there are plenty of other people out there who want to know what's the best wine in that vertical if i'm tonight with my friends and i want to open it so i'm really going to try to kind of empower people in that way in terms of how they search the database
1: that's an amazing topic to tackle, drinkability. There's so much more depth to that, but also so much more complexity because you have so much more wine to cover as opposed to just current release. It sounds like a daunting task for what it actually sounds like you've signed up <laughs> for more work. Big database. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah, you're right. Check back in in six months' time.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So instead of the 500 Krupa, kru- kru, you're basically going to go back multiple <laughs> decades. <laughs> yeah. So outside of JaneAnson.com, the wine industry has gone through you know a couple of years of transition with the digital revolution being forced upon us with COVID and everybody staying at home. So I'm curious on what are you most excited for that is going to be happening in the next year in the wine world?
2: I'm definitely interested to see what will stick after all the things that we have all learned to do over the past 18 months in terms of the kind of online tastings. And one of the things that I have really loved, and this was with Decanter, we've gone from doing masterclasses where everybody come to a hotel in London and people come in the room and it's super exciting. But one of my favorite tastings that I've done in the last year was a Chateau Margaux. It was actually the last tasting I did before I told Decanter actually pretty much the next morning of what my plans were. But we did this wonderful tasting in Chateau Margot where it was just on Zoom, but we had people in like 50 different countries all listening in. And I you know you guys get that obviously with, with podcasts and it's just so fun and it just really brings together how the wine world is so connected and people genuinely love these producers and these things. And I just felt much closer to, the, I think, the end consumers and the people that I'm writing for by that idea. And I'm really excited to see how that develops and what kind of new technologies we're going to find to make that even easier for how the producers speak to the end consumer all i can hope to do is really be a channel in which that can happen on a more regular basis and on a more authentic basis so i'm super interested about that and i'm interested to know with fine wine all of us talk a lot about diversity and the fact that we recognize that it needs to be more open i'm really excited and hopeful to see how that goes forward over the next decade for it to be really put into place. And of all of the places to be witnessing that and realizing the importance of it is Bordeaux, because Bordeaux, in many ways, Bordeaux has been massively international for a thousand years. you has always had waves of foreigners coming in, myself being one, and many, many, many different nationalities coming in here and spreading the word of Bordeaux back in wherever they come from. And yet... In so many ways, this is a very closed world with the same faces and the same families that have all the power. There might be people that they allow in on the periphery, but not really at the center. And that's something which has to change. And I'm really um, interested to see how it does and to see if I can just do a tiny part in trying to help bring that conversation forward. I don't know, wine right now is pretty cool how open it's getting, at least how people are challenging the status quo of what it's been like for so long.
1: Jane, we want to thank you for sharing all that knowledge and in-depth experience that you have by being boots on the ground in Bordeaux. We really appreciate it. And we will look forward to seeing the launch of janeanssen.com and checking out and becoming subscribers.
2: Thank you so, so much, guys. That was great. It's lovely speaking to you. And I look forward to seeing you soon.
1: Thanks for joining
0: us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.